You're listening to Muslim Girls Events Reimagining Care, a series exploring community and self-care in light of structural racism and the inequalities we face. In this series, we interview participants and coaches from Muslim Girls Events, academics, activists and artists about their experiences over the past year and throughout all the lockdowns. We find out what care means to them, whether they feel cared for, what some of the barriers are to accessing healthy spaces, and what they imagine a future to look like where we are all looked after and centered. We hope to show that care and well-being is dependent on so much more than candles and bubble baths, although we know that helps. As Audre Lorde said, caring for myself is not self-indulgence. It is self-preservation and an act of political warfare. In the first episode of Reimagining Care, we're joined by sport writer Shireen Ahmed and hear from coach Binny and participant Mona. We talk about the importance of safe spaces where we can freely express ourselves and the challenges we face from the wider structures we live in. Please note that this episode does contain some swearing. My name is Binny and I'm a paediatric nurse uh, in Birmingham and I work alongside with Maslaha teaching fencing to Muslim girls. Being cared for to me means um, having a safe environment um, where I'm actually able to express myself and um, emotionally and just mentally that um, I'm safe um, anywhere that I feel that I have that, um, I feel I am cared for. Being safe for me is just being able to just have a connection with just me. Um, and I feel that uh, with all with with both lines of work that I do, um, sometimes where I am actually restricted in what I can, what I can say, even though if I do want to say it, um, that for me is awkward. But having a place where I don't have to feel that I need to be unsettled. Yeah, I guess it's that. For my community, I think the first thing that they will actually look at um, to see whether they are actually safe there would be, um, you know, is women going to be safe in terms of like, is it going to be free mixing or are they going to be able to, you have to look at their prayer times. Um, stuff like that so as a coach it's it's vital for me to actually be able to acknowledge that uh, in order for me to actually put a service out there that they will be able to commit to 110 percent um as a coach you know um and that's not just for just my community it's in general um whichever community that you are going to be engaging with you have to go in there thinking that I'm here to serve them, not that I need them. And if you if you have that sort of mindset that I don't want to go in there just to teach them for like four or five weeks and then forget about them, but it's to go into a community knowing the fact that I can change something for them, whether it's just boosting their confidence or helping them to reach um, a, another goal or and it work. And it's also for myself to be able to learn. Um, so I can help all walks of life. Um, for me as a coach, that's really important to actually understand who I'm going to actually teach and what I can learn from them in order for me to best serve them. So 
there's a, a few groups that are, are hard to reach. I would say that it's because the way I dress, they may see me as a um, possible threat. Um, sometimes I feel that I have to actually verify or prove certain matters of my life just to kind of get through that door. So it's that that's the biggest challenge that I've faced. But I find um, whilst I've been working on Zoom, it's pretty much you can just reach out to anyone because I don't have that. Well, I'm not fully kitted in terms of like the way I dress outside. So when I'm at home, I'm a totally different person. So I, ha I don't have that barrier. But on a normal day, I, for me, it would be if I'm trying to reach out to, and it's it's within within my own community. I feel that I do get, I don't get it as much as I would from uh, your average sort of community. But I do, I do get. It. That's been the biggest challenge for me to just proved to say one being a woman if you're going into a male dominated world and they see you as a fencing coach or as any type of coach I've like seen within my my own sort of colleagues just by being a woman you have to actually prove that you're worth worth that to be able to teach the students um so I think for me those are the two biggest challenges Hi everyone and thanks for joining us in today's podcast. Today we're really lucky to have Shireen Ahmed with us. Shireen is a sports journalist and Shireen tell us a bit about yourself. Thank you Shaheen. I'm a multi-platform sports journalist. I have a podcast called Burn It All Down. I um, write and reflect and interrogate the intersections of misogyny and racism in sport and I am an, an industry expert on Muslim women in sport. Amazing. You are just the person we need to speak to today. Um, we've been speaking to our project participants for Muslim Girls Fence all around the themes of care and well-being and what it means to them. And we'd really like to ask you some questions about some of the things that came out of those conversations. To start off with, what does care mean to you? So what does it mean for you in the sense of self and the individual and also in terms of community? Thanks so much for that question. I, I love that question. And very ironically, I just wrote a paper. I'm doing my master's at the moment. And one of the papers I wrote was about online advocacy and activism. But in that sphere, what it means about self-care, self-love, and self-preservation. And um, I did get an A in case my father is listening, um, of course. <laughs> of course. Uh, but one of the things is that how we look at the work that we do, whether it's online and on the ground, and we know there's not only one way to activism, there's many ways one can contribute, but the type of labor, the emotional labor the that falls on racialized pe people, particularly racialized women, um, is is enormous. That and And I think I was studying the history of what self-care meant, and it was actually a concept that came out of Black women and their communities in, in a place in the United States in some urban centers in which medical treatment and healthcare was not available to them. So the concept of caring for yourself, because we know disproportionately uh, Black women are ignored and racialized women are ignored in many, many ways in, in the healthcare system. 
And self-care was not just a physical thing that was part of it, but also emotional because the understanding was already there of, you know, knowing to take care of yourself. And I think about that a lot as I, as I sort of navigate these spaces and very much think about what I can do to shoulder someone else's burden or if there's weight that I can carry for others, particularly in a moment for a black community when the year has been so fraught and, and, and where I am because I'm based in Toronto, which is, you know, occupied indigenous land and where people here have been struggling for centuries. Um, and, you know, just being mindful of what I can do and how I approach things. So, but also understanding that the work that I do is not a sprint, it's a marathon. And it's going to be yeah. like activism and whatever capacity is a lifelong commitment. So do you feel like um, activism or advocacy or bringing, bringing the, in the voices that need to be centered, like for you, is that a form of community care or communal care or collective care? Well, absolutely, because the way in which you approach the work has to center the well-being of those who are involved in it there's a recklessness about not caring about who's around you and I think that also leads into accountability how are you doing this work and you know what is the purpose what's the intention and I'm Muslim and intention is everything so I wake up and I think why am I doing this is there a reason whether if it's for work on um Muslim women and inclusion in sports and fighting hijab bans, or whether it's fighting homophobia or whether it's fighting anti-blackness, it doesn't matter. Like I need to make sure that looking at something from an anti-oppression lens is not self-fulfilling. Self-preservation doesn't mean your ego. It means that you take care of yourself as you do this work, but are mindful of community. I mean, community is the basis for activism of racialized folks generally and I mean I don't think I would be doing the work that I do if I didn't have a very solid community and one of the things that I hold very closely is a quote by Audre Lorde which is caring for myself is not self-indulgence it is self-preservation and that is an act of political warfare and I hold that really close all the time and I'm really glad you said that, especially that quote, because that quote has kind of informed this series. It's informed like why we're having the conversations we're having, why we're asking the questions we have, we're, we're asking and who we're asking these questions to. I feel that how like what the way you were talking about care and self-care, it feels like self-care has or like self-care in inverted commas has been commodified and it's kind of been divided from wider understandings of health and structural barriers to healthcare. So in your in your experience, whether professional or personal or you know everything's an intersection or both, you know, all of it, like what can we learn from our elders or our traditional practices about care and self-care? Like you spoke about black feminism, which is which is informed so much of the work that we do today but what else can we um, implement from our traditions and our faith traditions? I think one of the things that uh, is very important to me is one of the things from traditions of Muslim communities is the importance of sisterhood and women's relationships 
um, and you know to also even be gender expansive on that those there's spaces that are not for men and those who identify as men and that's something that I really believe in there's collaborations that I do I love working with all women teams uh, Muslim girl offense in particular when you know we first met and did a collaboration with TEDx Toronto over the summer the end of the summer I there's a there's a joy in that and I remember there was one one man on this team of people. And I made a point to single that out and be like, Hey, you're really lucky to be in these spaces because I don't open my doors. I know oh, right? I don't open my doors yeah. for men <laughs> like in these spaces, because there's a joy in that, in those relationships of sisterhood. And I wish I have a 19 year old daughter and I can't wait till she starts investing in those relationships personally and professionally. Um, she already does. And I see moments of it, but I call my crew, my lady army, they're all over the world. There's definitely a UK, you know, contingent, which is you folks, but um, they're all over the place. And that's what's so impactful and meaningful. Like you have chosen family, you have people that will have your back, which is part of what community is. It's caring for others. And it's also self-preservation and protection of each other and what you hold close in principle. And that is that is one thing that I definitely learned from the women and the elders in my community. And there are parts of the Muslim community and of which I belong to where accountability was a thing. I think I've seen it less and less in some spaces as I've grown older, but there are people who stand up and who say, this is a problem, we will address that we will be accountable. And I can say what I say about men and misogyny and Islam, but there are people that are trying to keep that alive, that spirit of integrity and accountability, which I don't think we see enough of in, in, in spaces that I occupy anyway. Yeah, absolutely. I'm thinking about spaces um, and safe spaces and what that means, like, could you and then I guess like your realm of work is around sports in particular. So could you speak a little about like the barriers that Muslim women or even marginalized communities in general face in accessing like sport and physical activity spaces? And then also like, how does that feed into care? How does physical activity, sports, games, how does that link into care and well-being? Well, I've always firmly believed that sport is a tool of empowerment and a vehicle to goodness and connection of people. I firmly believe that. And I, like, I still do. I wouldn't be doing the work I do if I didn't actually inherently believe in that truth. And over a decade of my work on research on Muslim women in sports, one of the biggest barriers is equipment and uniform inclusion and accommodation. Um, very much like all young girls, confidence is always a huge piece. Um, I coached uh, for over over 10 years, I coached a, a private Islamic school girls team of middle school, which is grades uh, class six, seven, and eight. So what ages would that be? That would be 12, 13, 14. Okay. And um, sixth grade, we call it here. And uh, and then you go off to senior high, which is grades 9, 10, 11, 12. And so it was that age, that, you know, adolescent age where there's so much happening. But it's also brilliant. It's also that age where young girls, traditionally, we know the, the, the data shows us they leave sport. 
their bodies are changing and there's a lot of stuff happening and there's social pressures that really start com compiling because when you have a six-year-old usually they're spirited enough to not care and run and but then when they get to the next level it's different and with them it wasn't skill I can coach skill. I can teach you how to pass. I can teach you how to center yourself and look up before you shoot. I can teach you positionality. I can teach you what the offside rule is. These things are coachable. What's not necessarily coachable is confidence, which society already told those girls that they weren't going to be athletes. And it's not just with Muslim girls. It's with all girls, many girls. It is, like I said, compounded because of like identity and spaces that don't include Muslim girls, but it was that barrier as well. So equipment, and this is something that's easily rectified. And for example, in the United States and some schools in Canada, the school boards did their research. I've done some consultancy work on it and they contacted a hijab company who was happy to say, tell us your school colors, we'll send you hijabs in these colors so they can be part of the uniform. This is not a difficult thing to do. It's, it's just that the people who make the decisions aren't aware of some of the problems and therefore their response to creating solutions is a little bit off. And um, traditionally those and decision-making roles are not Muslim women or racialized women with an understanding of the culture. So those are some of the things that I see. I actually don't think that the biggest hurdle now is men and dads saying no to their girls that's actually not <laughs> traditionally maybe 40 years ago or 30 years ago 20 years ago that might have been the biggest struggle it's not what it is now yeah and even that would have been for you know reasons of safety or reasons of like you know immigrant families you're going to you want your children to be safe you don't want you know you know what they're going to face if they if they enter an all white and, and definitely so. safety is an aspect i mean i'm not going to pretend like you know inherent and in, internalized sexism and misogyny is not a thing and it's but it's not specifically only from the dads and, and, the, and the male figures yeah. i've you know had rows with many mothers who wouldn't let their daughters compete in like a football team and it was me convincing help with help of the dad trying to convince the mom that was okay to let the daughter participate because you know when immigrant histories you're afraid of what you don't know and will the will, will the player get hurt and what it is and you know so there's a lot of that and I understand that and I have to be in a place where I understand that that's part of the work I do no two people's experiences are the same because my parents were immigrants but loved sport and I had easy access to it and also financially it was possible that's the other thing financial barriers are a huge structural barrier and people yeah take that for granted yeah, absolutely. I mean, we found with um, Muslim Girls Fence that so many, there's, it's, there's no such thing as no thirst for sport or no appetite for sport, but it's all, almost like there's, the thirst is there, the appetite is there, but the barriers are just insurmountable. So cost being one of them, like it will cost to enter a space, it will cost to get to the space and then it will cost in terms of equipment or uniform or all sorts of things. And these costs mount up. And um, I think if you're if you're in a certain income bracket, it's just not possible. And it's, it's people, sports providers don't really take that into consideration. So I guess um, what I'd like to ask you is that what does it mean to have a holistic approach 
to sports provision or spaces for physical activity? One of the biggest things when you're thinking about policy or best practices around any type is to have input of a community you're trying to, to work with. I think this is always going to be key. And who are you including at the table? Not just the community at which you serve. Who's making the decisions? Who's deciding on rollout and implementation of the project? That's very important to me. And something that I see as well-intentioned as people are, if you don't have the lived experience of the community you're trying to serve, or deep deep understanding or having worked a relationship or rapport, it's not going to work. There's going to be huge holes in it. And there's nothing wrong with admitting that there's nothing wrong with addressing that. This is actually something that needs to be part of best practices and how we approach. And even me, if you know, yes, I'm Pakistani, but I was born and raised out of country. So if I go back and I want to work on a project, it would be naive and a bit arrogant for me to understand exactly what's happening for people that were born and lived and and raised there. So I need to be working there. I need to be learning and listening, which are key, and talk to people, center their experience in it. And I think that's one of the things that I've learned as well. Like I'm very protective of spaces of Muslim women, but I can't profess to know and understand. I'm somebody who's an observer. Before you can jump in the pool, you have to learn how to swim. In terms of like uh, bringing communities together and bringing, um, having safe spaces what does it mean to have like a holistic approach to sports provision? And I know this is a really broad question, but what's the first, what are the first sort of things that come to mind in terms of um, spaces and the need of communities? I think um, harm reduction is the first thing I think of and not something that we talk about a lot enough. Um, also who's implementing. My first question to everything, Shaheen, will always be who's doing, who's running this project. If people come to me, I'm like, who's at the table? If people ask me to be on a panel, what does a panel look like? Um, I'm very, because how things roll out, always circle back to who organized them and who came up with the idea and how that was done and in what way. If I am, you know, looking to do a project or something in a, community, let's just say there's a community in Toronto that has a lot of uh, Somali community. Am I sensitive and aware of all the issues particular to that community? No, I would be naive for me to think that I was, even though I'm Muslim. So, you know, I call up one of my friends and say, listen, can you co-pilot this with me? There has to be an intentionality and an honesty about what we're doing. It's not a lack of expertise. Being an expert means you know what you're doing and you want to do it responsibly. It would and I guess it also means you you know what you don't know. The most important thing, the most important in, thing I've ever learned yeah. is to be able to say, I don't know. Yeah. You would be, well, I don't think you would be shocked at the amount of people that, and particularly in sports media, that are, it's just full of bullshit. These men that are like going off about something they clearly don't know. One of the reasons, alhamdulillah, I think I've done well is because I know what's in my wheelhouse. I don't try to tackle things that I don't know. And I'll say, this is not my expertise. Why don't you talk to this person? Yeah. What? Sometimes being inclusive means being exclusive. Like, you know who needs to be brought into the center and who shouldn't be in the center. Um, I'm very good to say. Oh, I'm, I'm very saying. good to tell people they shouldn't <laughs> be in the center. That's one of my fortes, actually. But um, yeah, absolutely. You need to focus 
on this person. This person has that expertise. And that's one thing I believe that sometimes organizations or committees don't do very well. They don't look outside themselves for ideas. And there's this, well, we don't want to bring too many people in. No, you don't want to bring too many people in, but you want to bring the right people in. And yeah, there's a dishonesty sometimes in sport with what people know, which is why I was so pleased to see the Muslim Girl Fence Project, because British fencing realized that they had gaps in their knowledge. So they brought in people to like, it's one of the projects that I, when I write my book, I will be writing about it because I was so pleased because there's so few. I was shocked. Yay, we're going to be well, famous. You are famous to me. You are famous <laughs> to me because of the open and sincere way that people are engaging here. This is not... There's very few sport federations I've seen on a global level that would be as forthright as British fencing was. Now, I know they have their problems. I'm not saying that any place or association is perfect, but I'm saying the way in which they engaged in this is me as an observer and someone who studies this stuff and researches it and works in it. I was like, this is a model of how this can be. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, huge shout out to British Fencing and our team there, because without them, none of this would be possible. And not not only that, but without their sort of open heartedness as well and their honesty, it just makes such a huge difference. Um, earlier, you touched on care and how your work is more like a marathon and not a sprint. To, for anyone listening, would you have any practical advice on how you could put that into practice? Like just internalizing that it's not a sprint and it is, we're in for the long haul. Particularly this year. And, you know, there's been a lot of catalytic uh, movement and shift in conversations. I'm not saying that anyone has learned how to deal with racism properly or, you know, we're not, we're just chipping away at it. Yeah. But the murder of George Floyd certainly opened up conversations and exposed people who were ill-equipped to handle the conversations. Now, some of us, many of us have been doing this work for a very long time and not just in media spaces and any spaces. We are also misled to think that people on the left and who have left-leaning views have better practices yeah. in politics, which isn't always the case. Not no, like not we all. think misogyny doesn't exist because the men have better politics. Uh, no, that's not true. Um, so being aware of where you are and being honest with yourself is helpful and sort of inflecting on where you are in that space and what you need. Like my self-care practice revolves a lot around coffee and food. And you talk about community and I'm talking about sisterhood. My best friend, was over. And I don't think there's ever been a time, whether it's been in joy or stress or sadness or, or grief or joy or whatever that we haven't eaten. There's always a, there's always food there. And that's what my love language is and hers. So we feed each other. And like, I'm a mom, I feed my kids. And sometimes my stress, um, my stress looks like me cleaning. I don't like I clean cause it helps me. It's like, it gets my heart beating faster and I like it, but yeah. I've also tapped into what I need. Um, very recently, I was super close to a burnout and it left me in tears. I was exhausted and interacting with toxic white women in a way that was really dangerous for me. Um, and I was, not only was I reading this fantastic book that I highly recommend to everybody, um, but it was so close to home that I started to, I needed something, I needed something frivolous. The work I do, I think critically, I engage in different ways critically. I needed to shut off. I needed something 
fun. And so I started yeah. doing a paint by numbers project. Oh, amazing. I love it. And um, I did, I've done two, I've done um, a map of the world and I've done a cat and I have another one. And I needed to listen to audiobooks that were not intense. Like I was listening to an audiobook about white supremacy and the way that women uphold white supremacy and violent racism. That's not a light listen. So I need I needed to address the fact that I needed to get something lighter. Um, I love music and sometimes I'll just put my headphones on and listen to music and I enjoy that tremendously. Um, it could be, uh, I don't actually listen to podcasts. I will listen to this one, obviously, but obviously, um, but something a little more lighthearted is what I needed. I, I totally agree with that. I think whether it's going for a walk in the sunshine or, you know, go hug a tree, do what you need to do to take care of yourself. Because if you can't take care of yourself, you can't take care of the people around you, right? Um, and also understanding that the pandemic might have um, sort of put a, you know, a wrench in those plans because my usual practice of self-care was playing football. And I haven't been able to because of the pandemic. I haven't played football in over a year. And that is the longest I've been away from the game since I was six years old. I'm, even when I was pregnant, I, it was like the expanse of wow. a year was a long yeah. time for me. You know, I would do the thing, I'd go nurse at halftime if I needed to. And it's been a very long time since I've been away. Even when I was injured, I wasn't away this long. So it's, um, you know, I have to find out, I've taken up yoga and I was like refusing to take yoga before, but I found a really cool practitioner. There's a black woman and an Indian woman, and I'm very happy to get my yoga from there. Um, white woman and yoga and me is like, no. So also know what your triggers are. <laughs> Be aware of what you want to stay away from is also fair. It's part of your self-preservation. It and does. And I think that also prevents that burnout or it kind of, you know, holds it at bay a bit longer. If you know what's going to trigger you in to that mm -hmm. extent, just just stay away and go read the, you know a chick chick lit book or something which is totally fine no guilt I think it's a great idea you've mentioned it twice so I know what you're reading yeah uh, so uh <laughs> I'll share my reading list with you, you should, I would love it on a day-to-day -day basis how do you celebrate yourself give us some tips to celebrate ourselves beautiful question um I think sort of reveling in the relationships I have and being grateful for them, but also just reliving moments of happiness um, that really make me feel seen and heard and celebrating myself. I mean, I live with a cat who hates me and I adore her. So it's hard to, to work around that. Like she literally hates me. Her name's Sitara, which means star in Urdu, but we call her Tara. And she's just like, always looking at me with disdain. So savage Sitara. She's just really rough on me. Um, but I think to treat myself in little ways, like I really enjoy good coffee and I think life is too short to have bad ice cream and bad coffee. So if it's like a little treat here, if it's like, I'll buy a book, I'm addicted to books and I will, if I can, and it's possible, um, I buy racialized women writers as much as I can. And that's usually what I'm reading all the time. I'm reading this book by Ruby Hamad called um, White Tears, Brown Scars, How White Feminism Betrays Women of Color. And it's giving me life. Yes, I've like heard I of this. Am. How is it? 
it's brilliant. Like I'm like highlighting passages and really, and, and I think also getting in touch with the, how I celebrate myself is also keeping in touch with a spiritual community. There's a community called Rabata, which is an all women led organization. And um, I really am enjoying my Islam without men at the moment. I think, it, I think it's the best <laughs> so way just, to enjoy it, to be honest. It, well, you know, sharing knowledge about women scholars that I wouldn't have access to, like women Qadis who read the Quran, and especially as we're gearing up into Ramadan to celebrate those pieces of myself, because being grateful means that I am centering myself, because I'm being grateful for what I have and acknowledging that I have it. And that's a way to do it as well. Um, but also, yeah, I'm, I'm pretty good to myself. I like to think, especially with food. Oh yeah. Good. Always good. Like, I can, I can buy this, this, you know, ravioli stuffed with burrata. I can absolutely do this It's $6, but I'm going to do this for myself. Like there's just whatever it is for you. If it's like an extended rest or stretch class, um, I, you know, if it's a long shower, if it's a face mask, if it's. I've started to try to work in those things. Like I will do a face treatment for myself. Like my daughter's like, what's your skincare regimen? She was like 12 when she asked me this. I'm like, I don't have one. She's like, you need one. Wearing sunscreen every day is very important. I did not know this. It's important to wear sunscreen, even if you don't go outside because UV light comes in. That's celebrating myself because I care about myself and I want to take care of myself. So these things like building them in and drinking water. Oh my God, I have to drink more water. Amazing. Thank you so much, Shireen. Um, thank you for joining us today. It's been an absolute pleasure to chat to you. And I know we're going to speak more and more and more. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Hi, my name is Mona. Safety to me looks like being in a place where I can express myself in a way that I'm not judged um, and I can be who I am and show up authentically as myself. Collective care for me really involves looking after the well-being of all members of society, right? Not just people's physical needs, but more importantly, their uh, emotional needs, their mental health needs, I see it as a way of empowering the community so that everyone really can have this space and freedom and safety to be their best selves and lead their best lives. I wasn't afforded the privilege of being accepted for who I was. I I had to change my accent. Um, I had to change um, the way I looked, the way I sounded. Uh, I laughed at myself. I would make fun of my own accent and things like that because that would make me popular. And I realized that I put on so many masks during that time and I couldn't show up as who I was. And it honestly took me a long, long time to peel away those masks. And for me, that's one of the reasons being who I am and being true to who I am, being authentic equals safety because I'm honoring myself and I'm honoring my inner child and 
honoring the space that I take up. With regards to celebrating myself, I've learned to celebrate my little wind. Today, I woke up when I said I would. <laughs> Today, I was creative. Today, I had a great Bajweed class, you know. So I celebrate myself. That's my top tip. Celebrate the small wins. Because when you start looking and seeing the small wins everywhere, every day feels like you're winning, right? Every day feels like you're celebrating. And the more you do it, the more you see, the more you are grateful for. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed this episode. Listen to the next episode as we continue the conversation. To find out more about Muslim Girls Fence and our work, visit muslimgirlsfence.org and find us on Instagram at maslaha underscore UK and at British Fencing and on Twitter at maslaha and at British Fencing.